0: Everything that I do now
1: Okay, we are still in East Tennessee. Uh, it's been a couple of rainy days. Not a lot going on but uh, I was lucky enough to get a hold of somebody that was willing to come in and sit in the hot seat and have a beer with me. None other than uh, a Mississippi transplant up here in the Holston Valley. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're here with Robert King, the manager of South Holston River Fly Shop. Good having you, buddy. Thanks, man. So, uh, you know, you're you're on a tailwater, so uh, for the most part, all this rain really doesn't mean too much as far as uh, how things go on the river, other than probably getting a little off color and such, but uh, what brought you to East Tennessee? You know, most people, I grew up here, and uh, most people spend their life trying to get the hell out. And here you are trying to claw your way in. Well, um, I was out west
2: guiding for the last 20 years. Okay. And my family is from north Mississippi. And I was trying to figure out a way to get back to the south. Um, I spent a lot of winters watching social media and following all these people and uh, just being locked up. Uh, no fishing. Hunting season lasts about a month,
1: and uh, just started kind of going stir crazy. So there's like this big problem out west um, during the winter time, and it's it, it's white, yes, and it's deep, yep, and the water is
2: frozen. Correct. And- um, you're lucky to fish in November, but definitely December, January, February. Um, there's no fishing. There's a little bit of tailwater fishing outside of steamboat snowmobile access, but uh, I had relocated to Meeker, Colorado, and I was uh, guiding in the summer and and uh, ranching in the winter. So we we got about the same amount of snowfall. What kind of elevation were you at? Uh, town was at about sixty five hundred. Uh, one of the lodges was right out, probably eighty five hundred, that I worked at.
1: Awesome. Um, summers had to be just unbelievable. Unbelievably short. Really?
2: Yeah. Um, we had snow up until June 10th one year, and then snowing in archery season by August
1: 28th again. Damn. So, so um, you know, Sims um, does their event every year, ice out. Um, you know, I've, I've fished a little bit. Uh, here and there out west, and the runoff, um, you know, you're you're dealing with all this snowpack and the ice, and, you know, as things are melting, that water's got to go somewhere. So even though it might be beautiful outside, you're dealing with just way too much water. Yeah. Um, Where you are now, at least you kind of, have a prediction of what you're going to be dealing with. You can kind of plan for what kind of day you're going to have based on, I guess the TVA forecasts, what they're planning on doing, right? Yeah. Um,
2: it's definitely different looking at your cell phone every day, checking flows. Uh, the white river meeker was a free stone runoff was the month of May and then you're done fishing at the end of November. So, you know, it was, uh, it's it's different. I live on my cell phone, just constantly checking flows.
1: So out west, um, was this more of like a private water type uh, access? It was. A ranch that yep. uh, people came and stayed for a week? Or was it like you, you would have people come in for a day? It was.
2: You know, it was an Orvis Lodge okay. that got bought by a pro
1: athlete. Okay. And
2: then it became exclusive to friends and family only. Okay. Um, 13,000 acres, three miles of water. So, you know, we had a lot of pet fish out there that we knew where they lived.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, mostly cutthroat? Um, you know...
2: But cut, cutthroat, rainbow, and brown. Okay, yeah.
1: So you had all three. Um, what would you say was the f- your favorite aspect of living out west? I mean, obviously, you spent twenty years out there. So, what was the allure? What kept you there for two decades? Um.
2: You know, the first decade was just not to go back to Mississippi, not to fail, not to have to go home where you grew up and go back to the South. Um, of course, you know, the West is the best. The Wild West, there's not a lot of guardrails. You know, you can hike anywhere you want. You can hunt anywhere you want at your own risk. You know, it was the Wild West to a certain extent. But, um, you know, the, the last 10 years, the the guiding, the ranch guiding also, um also involved me doing archery elk so I re- that's something that I really wanted to get into living and working on a ranch of that size it made it very easy and also they allowed us time off to hunt
1: pretty good benefit
2: so, yeah it was uh, in, in my opinion hands down that's you know definitely the some
1: of the best hunting there is so you ever watch the TV show? Yellowstone? I haven't. You haven't. Damn, there goes a whole like half hour of me talking about, (laughs) is is Ranch Life really like
2: the Yellowstone? It was just too much hype. Everybody telling me to watch it, so I just (laughs) decided not to. You just weren't buying into (laughs) it. You're uh -uh. like, fuck that. No, I just got through doing that.
1: All right. So I think that for people to really get to understand and know who Robert King is, we're going to have to rewind we, we know that you're a good old boy from Mississippi. M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. What's the other? Uh, M-I, humpback, humpback, crooked letter, crooked letter. How's that go? Uh, I,
2: when you live there, they make you grow up spelling Minnesota. <laughs> so that's for everyone else. I, I'm clueless.
1: Okay. So... Uh, <laughs> I guess the question is, you're living in Mississippi. It, it, I don't know of any trout fishing in Mississippi. Am I right, or am I wrong? No trout. Because for a long time I would have said, Alabama is devoid of trout, but the fact is, there are a couple of they, there are a couple of places in, in Alabama you can yeah. go trout fishing. Yeah. Um, how did you end up with a fly rod in your hand?
2: Well, um, my family's got some land in North Mississippi. Okay, um, near Startville, uh, we got a five-acre pond. And about when I became about twelve or thirteen, we were going up there to the family reunion, and I got ready to go over and just go do some spin fishing, fishing. And uh, my uncles were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't go over there. You can't fish that corner. You can't fish that corner unless you take a fly rod." Um, basically the spin rod was going to blow up all the bedding bluegill, all the fish on the beds. And we were having a fish fry for the whole family. So they needed everybody fly fishing so we could slowly but surely catch every fish in the pond <laughs> and cook for the entire family. Right. So, um, both, uh, my uncles, and, uh, I guess my grandfather, everybody were fly fishermen. So we had a bunch of raggedy poles laying around with automatic reels on them. And uh, I think they're a Martin or something, maybe. No offense, Martin. uh, That's
1: like, that is, you know, we we jokingly talk about fly poles, but literally (laughs) you you learned to fly fish with a
2: fly pole. Yeah. Um, The automatic reel was good. You know, you catch a fish on a popper, you could pull the trigger and have him come skinning back to you pretty quick. I don't think I've...
1: Ever. I mean, I've seen them, but I've never held one in my hand or or fished with one. Yeah. It's got to be...
2: i to come down the dirty south. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The family pond.
2: Um, So anyway, I started fly fishing at a young age. And, um, you know, as soon as I got my license, I got a canoe. Okay. And I was cruising around fly fishing all the time and with my canoe on top of my Bronco, too. And uh, just... Found myself doing a lot of things nobody was doing around there. I was mountain biking trails that were nature trails, you know, getting in trouble. Hey, you can't ride a bike here. And finally, I had a buddy that went on a hiatus, got in a bunch of trouble, and he just took off and left home and ran away. And uh, somehow he ended up in Montana. And uh, I was finishing up uh, college, and he was cruising through, and he was like, man, I found a place for you. And he said, I went somewhere, everybody was fly fishing, bikes on top of all the cars, canoes, white water. He's like, I stopped in Yellowstone National Park. He's like, I met a bunch of cool people. Um, You should consider going out to Yellowstone and just checking it out. You know, when you get out of school, he's like, you'd love it. It'd be something cool to do. And, um, you know, I was graduating college that year and wasn't ready to get married to my high school girlfriend. And that caused a big uproar, and I was walking down the hallway one day, and there was a flyer stuck on the wall with a pad, uh, you know, like the
1: little pad stuck on. Yeah, where you could take, like, rip off, you know, to to take the number with you.
2: Yeah, it was a poster, and it said, do you want to work in Yellowstone National Park? And uh, I just went ahead and ripped one off and cruised through my day and filled it out. And within about two weeks, I got an
1: application.
2: And within about a month, um, after saying I would take any job in the entire park, uh-huh. um, I got hired.
1: So you worked at Yellowstone. That was I did work at Yellowstone. And um, what did, what did you do there?
2: I signed up to clean rooms. Okay. So at the f- at like Yellowstone Lodge. Yep. So well, I was actually at the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. So um, my first day there. We had to go clean out the old cabins that sat up all winter. And there was these guys cruising around with ponytails and driving around laughing the whole time, and they're driving these linen trucks. And, uh, you know, by the end of the day, I mean, I just worked hard. I just started grinding out, scrubbing toilets and making beds. And, and I walked up to my supervisor, and I said, what do those guys do? And they said, they're truckies. And I said, what does a truckie do? And they said, well, they just drive these trucks, and they, they deliver linens all day. They're the truck guys, they're, they're your supervisor I said, okay I said, how do, you, how do you become a truckie? And she said, whoever has the cleanest rooms The next couple of days becomes truckies
1: So um, I started doing some serious cleaning <laughs> <laughs> good, good listener You're yes. like, okay, make a note I'm going to do this Because those guys are having a fucking kick-ass time It would appear So did you make truckie? I did make truckie and um, then let the fun begin.
2: I, um, I was volunteering for the park rangers. I had uh, almost finished my associate's degree in criminal justice. And I was doing a little program, and I was filling in with the park rangers. And it was pretty cool. And um, these guys were telling me about all the degrees I needed to go get and what I needed to do to become a park ranger. And after I went back to school for three more years, I'd have a 1 in 100 chance of getting the national park that I applied for Starting wage in 95 was $8 an hour with government benefits. And um, I'd say about a month later, I turned 21. And I was hanging out in West Yellowstone. I met these fly fishing guides. And uh, these guys were having way more fun than the truckies. And I said, uh, what, do you, what do you guys do? And they said, you want to go fish? And I said, yeah. So we went out and I caught more fish than I had in a long time. Started talking to these guys. And these guys are like, well... You know, we make 300 bucks a day and we just like to cruise around, drink beer and take tourists fishing. And I was like, wow. Um, hmm. So I'd been working on my trout fishing skills. You know, I wanted to move out to fly fish wherever it was great. And Yellowstone ended up being, a you know, the place to be. But uh, I really that was it the first time I ever got the thought of becoming a fly
1: fishing guide. So you finish out the summer mm-hmm. as a truckie. Yep. Yeah. Is it seasonal work? It was seasonal work. So w- what what did you do at the end of the season? The end of the
2: season, I applied to a campground down at the lake, and I started talking to them about their fishing guides. And I got this campground job for one more month, and that allowed me just enough time not to go back to college. So I, I stayed there. Sorry, Mom. Semester's <laughs> already started, and I'm <laughs> not done with work. And... um One of the ladies at the little place they made fudge came up to me, and she was bringing me some fudge, and she said, you know, I know that you were supposed to go home, but today there's a job fair, and all the ski resorts for the West will be there, and it's a day you need to go clean up and show up with your A-game. Well, maybe Grandma didn't say A-game, but, you know, show up and be ready and uh, go to that job fair. Get you a job. So... I cruised over there, I cleaned up, dug out a shirt, went over there and walked around and walked around to every ski resort and asked if they had employee housing and if they had a river to fly fish. And I made the circle through everything and it came down to Vail and Steamboat Springs. And Steamboat Springs said that they'd give me free ski equipment, work in the ski shop, and that the Yampa River ran right through the middle of town.
1: Right through downtown.
2: Yep. Yep. So... I uh, made a quick road trip over to Cali with a friend girl at the time, and we wanted to go see Haight-Ashbury and, you know, go check out San Francisco, go ride the Coast 1 and uh, made a huge road trip, and then I turned around and drove all the way back to Mississippi. Um, I dropped her up in Bozeman, I guess. We went all the way up to uh, Glacier National Park, dropped her off and turned around and went home. I'd already secured the job and um grabbed <laughs> at the time what I thought was winter gear and uh repacked um, and uh turned around and headed right back out west
1: so your first season at steamboat, what were you doing? I was um fitting skis and boots okay I was a, a ski tech ski tech, yep at the shop, yep. Doing like ski rental stuff. Oh yeah. Okay. Signing kids up for ski school and getting, oh, you know. oh yeah. All right. We were a high volume shop.
2: Um, pretty wild. I mean, there'd be fifteen of us uh, fitting skis at the same time.
1: Wow. Okay. So, so you spend the the season there. Uh, get out and do any fishing.
2: Um, uh, it was. We got. I think it was a record year. Twenty-two feet in twenty days.
1: So, no, the Yampa was not even close to being fishable. No.
2: So, I skied that whole season. Okay. And then um, lined up my summer job working at a, uh Orvis shop that's still there, Bucking Rainbow Outfitters, um, which are still some buddies of mine, some brothers from Texas. Okay. And um, I worked my first summer in the fly shop. So... Um worked the first summer there, and at the end of that season, I went out to a ranch and did a – well, I started guiding at the end of that season. I went out to a ranch, and then I did a few trips in town. Okay. And I, I apologize in advance if anybody's still around that I took out that year. You know, it was a pretty pretty tough season. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned a little bit
1: since then. It's like I'm taking you fly fishing. I mean, I'm just taking you to the river kind of was 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 the program the first time out
2: um you know i my first i started out um I'd fished that summer while I was working in the shop for probably two months and I, I was I was decent I knew I could at least take some people out and catch some big white fish and get them a couple of little rainbows and I know I could entertain them and um you know worst case scenario, have some adult beverages in the cooler, maybe some swisher sweets. So and, we're uh,
1: still we're still in this uh, at this time. It's what probably 98 ish. Uh, my first season Yellowstone was ninety
2: five, and my first summer guiding was ninety six.
1: Okay, so, <laughs> um, I guess the big question would be, how in the world were you able to become a fly fishing guide without Instagram? <laughs>
2: You know, I created my own little group of followers right there in the Yampa Valley. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was socializing and some positive energy, and uh, you know, I just kind of hopped in, hopped in the game, and uh, I had one guy at the fly shop tell me my first season at the at the Orvis shop said um, he asked to look at my flies because I asked him if they could put me on a trip, uh-huh. and uh, he I took my fly box up there. And it got, he told some other guys at another shop that he saw my fly box and there's no chance that I ever, you know, it was one of these stories you hear on the Sunday afternoon special. This guy's never got a chance of being a guide. He won't get hired. We're not going to hire him. He has no idea what he's doing. So, um, you know, that same guy wasn't willing to take me out or, you know, he was. Uh, but
1: that didn't stop you, did it?
2: I uh, No. You know, I just just got a little bit of hustle and fished a lot. I didn't really have much going on. I just, I mean, I'd grown up fishing my whole life. Right. So I was like, you know,
1: it's just another fish. And I think that is probably one of the more important things that is kind of lost um, generationally. Um, we've got a culture now where it's give me, give me, give me. It, it it's, there's an expectation that it's got to be instantaneous. Instant. You just simply dream it up and say, I, I'm going to be a fly fishing guide. And you just go out and you start doing it versus just the the little microcosm within your life of just these two summers. You were cleaning rooms and toilets, hustling, to make sure that you got that better job as the truckie, you noticed while you're at West Yellowstone, these guys are having a fucking kick-ass time guiding for trout. They had beer money. They had... Uh, and they had I was, plenty of beer money, I right? didn't have gas money. I mean, what you were probably making 300 bucks a week, if that. Uh, I think it was closer to 250 Yeah. Maybe. And they were making it in a 300 a day. Yes. So you had your eye on the prize, right? Yeah,
2: and I have to say, too, in and, and like this day and age, I see a lot of guys out there working a lot harder than I do. And I mean, and I'm not by no means bragging on myself. I'm just saying it comes kind of easy to me. I, I, I can read people fairly good, and I, I'm i just kind of, I'm a little bit fishy, and I, and I stay positive, and it seems to be able to get it done without, you know, Ending up on the bank with a sharp stick in my neck as my tip.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how many summers slash, or how many seasons, I guess, how many seasons was it just the grind? How long did Robert put in until you got to that ranch job? You know, um,
2: the following summer, hopefully some of these people out West will hear this because another guy gave me a startup. It, um, he had an outfitter called Buggy Whips, just kind of like the old school yeah. buggy whip logo. And they were a rafting fly fishing place. Um, and they were, their guides were just kind of. And where was this? This was in Steamboat. Okay. So the following year I went back and, uh, this guy put me on, he gave me my chance and, um. He didn't check your fly box. He didn't check my fly box. He said, hey, look, dude, can you can you guide? And I said, yeah, I can guide. Hell yeah. He said, you got a four-wheel drive? And I said, you bet. Had me a little baby blue Subaru with the white mags. And nice. I was like, yeah, I can take three people. I'm ready. And, uh, you know, he said, all right, you know, will you take a walkway trip or, or will you, do, you only want private water or what will you do? I said, I'll take anything you got. And um, I did buggy whips, for, I think, for the next – I'm almost thinking it was the next two summers I did buggy whips. And at the end of each of those summers, I actually went to a lodge over in Walden, um, Colorado. And? Um, I I finished out a season. Okay. uh, Being with a whole different group of guides, total different bodies of water, started dabbling in a little bit of uh, rifle elk hunting elk guiding rifle and bear guiding right and um and just kind of started mixing it up as i got into steamboat um i started kind of getting into the politics of things um i everybody had to work at a certain a certain outfitter but I like these guys down at straight line sports right on main street to another group of brothers that have a great sporting good shop. They still have a good guide operation, but they'd call me time to time and say, Hey man, can you, uh, can you fill in? Can you run a couple of trips for us? And back then it was kind of unheard of. You know, you worked somewhere. There wasn't a independent contract or anything like that going on. This would have been around probably 98. And, um, so I started filling in for those guys and, still working for buggy whips, then doing the lodge. And then I realized, um, some of these people are asking me to sign a no compete contract. Um, then other people didn't want me working for someone else. Then some of the same old stuff that happens everywhere. Then some of the gossip got out and says, you know, he's trying to work these two places and he's trying to steal your clients. And then some guys that were working at one of the shops opened up a, their own shop. And then it started getting complicated. And I said, you know what? I just want to fish. Forget and the
1: politics. I'm
2: done with that. And I started seeking after um, a couple of the high end lodges. And I had this book that was like sports Afield, field, um, all the best lodges in the West or, you know, and I went to the Colorado section and I flipped through it. <laughs> this is
1: so amazing. Like, to hear I had a book and I start flipping through like, you know, we're, we're so used to like, yeah, I grab my phone and I, you know, <laughs> ask Siri or whatever. So uh, this is really refreshing. So um,
2: I saw it at one of the lodges um, and I got the book and I went through it and it said the top four best lodges in Colorado. And two of them were located in Meeker, Colorado. And one of those was Seven Lakes Lodge. So I start asking around in Steamboat, like, who works at Seven Lakes? Do you know anybody who works at Seven Lakes? And everybody's like, oh, that's huge money. Those guys pay big money, but it's going to take you a year or two to get on. You know, you've you got to know somebody. It's not going to happen. So um, I started applying to those guys. And in the meantime, I worked at three of the other lodges in the book. One of them was elk trout in Kremlin, Colorado. Okay. Um, they've got a lot of awards through Orvis as being, um, they did, um, they've gone private now, but they, uh, they got the Orvis, all the Orvis corporate would go there almost every year. It was like the best of the West, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then there was another one. I'm probably going to start drawing some blanks. It's been so long since I thought about these places, but there's another one in Meeker and then Seven Lakes. So I had worked at three of the four and um, the first year I tried to get on at Seven Lakes Lodge, they said, look, we're going to give you, we'll give you a two-week trial, and your day starts. We need you up there September 10th, and I said, okay, and I got all ready, and I oh, no, know it was uh, September, My bad. It was September 12th, because I got September 11th, I woke up to head to the lodge, and um, all the flights were shut down. All the clients didn't show up. Oh, and then okay. I was canceled to be a guide for two weeks. Right, So I didn't get my trial. Oh. So the following year, I went to Kremlin or went to one, another one of the lodges. And after that, I made some money and I went and traveled. And, and I wasn't available that year. They called me in for the two-week trial. So then three years later, I finally... Get it, get, get it in paper for a summer, or a two months. Okay. And it was a big money gig. It was. Um, there was a big business tycoon that bought a lodge, built a lodge. He had his friends would come in for, you know, they didn't make any money. They had a guide for every sport. It was one on one. Um, and uh, so it, I I got on with them and um, and this is. Kremlin. This this would have been Seven Lakes Lodge in Meeker, Colorado. Oh, in Meeker, okay. Yep. So I ended up getting on with those guys. And I spent a summer there. And um, at the end of that summer, the lodge sold and went private. And everyone that was working there, except for um, anybody that was a manager, um, they ended up losing their job. Damn. So a pro athlete bought it. And it became his private residence. And then um, I just kind of sat back and waited. And then I applied. I knew the guy that was the recreation director. Okay. And I told him I'd fill in any days he needed. And he said, well, the new owner's going to be here. He's having his 50th birthday party. And um, we just need a couple extra guides on hand if you could show up. And at that time, it was unheard of in the ski industry. I was was I was I was corporate in the ski industry by that time, and I, it was close to my eighth or ninth year in the ski industry. I was running all the ski shops for Steamboat. And um, it was unheard of to take off work. And I just told my boss, I was like, hey, it's an emergency, and I need a few days off. And I went and worked that birthday party and finagled my way up to meet the new owner and just said hello and... Anytime anybody was looking around, I was shoveling or fish guiding or, you know, getting after it like they taught me in Yellowstone.
1: Right. Yeah. That that old lady that told you to clean up or, you know, make the cleanest rooms. Yeah,
2: I probably stuck.
1: I probably showed up at the guide lodge and cleaned the toilet right off the bat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I tucked the bed sheets in. Right. Um so um that following summer. Um, I put. I kept applying. I stayed after those guys, and I uh, ended up getting on there and stayed there for ten years.
1: So, what was the change of pace from, you know, being at a lodge that has obviously lodges stay in business because every week or every day or every so many days, you know, you've got turnover, you got new people coming in, and all of a sudden it goes to. Dude owns the place.
2: I worked there after a crazy background check that I, I failed. I guess my name was on the no-fly list, and they escorted me off the property after my background check came through. Like a week later, um, something just random. After I got that ordeal over, I worked there for six months before I even saw him ever. And it was the that was the dream job. Um, the owner flew out five weeks a year, and then basically we were ranching. Um, close to fifty horses at the time, you know, thirty-two outbuildings. Uh, we Googled and fixed more stuff than anyone could imagine.
1: So yes, I mean you you went from hey I'm working somewhere as a fishing guide to well we're not running guide trips anymore uh we're taking care of the owner when he's here for the small amount of time and that fucking tractor broke down how are we going to fix that i mean i just spent this afternoon um thank god for youtube um <laughs> getting a uh, a 1940s model ford 8n tractor running basically Knew what you know, kind of knew what was wrong with it, and the—I mean—it's just stunning the amount of information you can get, you know. Oh yeah. So. You're you're literally just like uh, jack of all trades at this point, right? Well, I kind of had the I had the best of the
2: best. I was the recreation director, so I maintained a fly shop. Um, all the fishing equipment up top, all the firearm
1: firearms. So, but so is, I mean, it's his residence, right? But is, does he bring his own guests in? Like he's bringing his friends, he's entertaining or whatever. So you, you're actually still kind of. When they were there, all we did is hunt and fish. Okay.
2: Yeah. So. I got you. Um, so, uh, you know, basically, he'd bring everybody in and say, "Hey, guys!" And some of his corporate groups, "Hey, we're all here to, you know, we're we're hunting this week, we're fishing this week, and um, yeah, we had a hustle. I mean, we we definitely got after it. You know, some of the first groups were like Bell Helicopters and you know Coors and you know There's some big yeah big groups. Big. Um, well, no, maybe Bell was a friend of his that, that that had been there before, but maybe I think Coors was possibly before. But it was just a few big handful of people that showed up. And that was the first season. Um, after that, it turned into just friends and family. There was no more, um, nobody that wasn't close to the family.
1: Okay. So you spent 10 years doing that, which is probably getting you pretty close to it's time to head back south. Yeah. The, do- the job. When, when mama listens to this, I want her to know I didn't say head east. <laughs> Yeah, she she didn't like that. So, you you wrap up your time out in Colorado for whatever reason, and you're like, I got to do something different. I want to head back closer to home. What were your parameters? Well, like,
2: I my I love saltwater fishing, and I, my first thought was maybe I'm going to move back home and and try and get in the guide gig outside of New Orleans or you know, Hopedale or any of these places where these guys are running around. I, over the years, I'd started saltwater fishing, um, you know, pretty avid starting in uh, 2005. Okay. So I started fly fishing, traveling, I actually co-hosted a few trips. I started doing a lot of saltwater fishing, as much as possible. Um, I got a lot of paid vacation on the ranch, and I took advantage of it. Um, so I thought I was going to do the salt thing. Um, then again, you're, you you might enjoy this. There was a magazine that came out that had the ten best fly fish saltwater fly fishing towns in it, and um, it was one of the fly fishing magazines. And I was just kind of thumbing through it, and it had the statistics of um, how much a house cost, um, you know, what you know, the cost of living, and all that stuff. Uh-huh. So I was really intrigued by uh, Charleston. Um, Buford, Beaufort—you know—all those towns were in there. Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, so I thought I was going to do the saltwater thing, but I spent about—I spent a couple of years trying to get a job or trying to get a, a in to get down to those places. You know, I even looked at Everglades National Park to try and see if I could get a job there, cleaning rooms—maybe uh, not <laughs> clean rooms—but <laughs> you know, to start just to find an end to do it over again. And I realized that I just wasn't getting very far on the job process. Right. I applied for a ton of jobs and I got hired for some, for, you know, a couple of awesome places out West. I probably applied for 50 different places. Right. I know that I have email feedback from about 35, 40. So, um, after kind of going in a full circle, um, and, and following a lot of these southern fly fishing guides, you know, like southern culture on the fly would be something that I found out about. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And I started checking out Garden and Gun magazine and they had some articles that looked like like the south was dabbling in fly fishing. Something, you know, Asheville had a tiny little scene. And I thought, well, I should start checking that out. You know, Georgia had a little place. So. You know, I realized that after being a trout fishing guide for twenty years, a ski instructor, and an archery elk guide, you know that I was fairly limited. Um, you know, you know, be cool, stay in school, <laughs> kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just didn't have a lot to work with, so I started researching and calling all these places. I literally emailed and called all these places, and I finally got in touch with this guy that was a casting instructor out of Georgia. And I I wish I knew his name, and and it would be so nice to go back and thank him. And he said, well, have you heard of the South Holston? I said, I hadn't heard of the South Holston. I said, I'd driven all the way up to Asheville. Nobody even mentioned it, you know.
1: Uh, Those fuckers just go to the Watauga. (laughs) (laughs) All of them. All of them. So, um. <laughs> well, you know, if you, if you go to Wikipedia, um, it says the population of Asheville is, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, and then there's an asterisk and you reduce that number by a factor according to the TVA release schedule. <laughs> wow, you
2: really you really understand things around here. Oh, yeah. So uh, this guy told me about the South Holston. I started, I started looking at it and researching it and the Watauga. And, you know, I had even looked at the new and stuff, but I hadn't heard of the Holston, like, this was probably six, seven years ago. Um, I hadn't heard of it. Nobody had mentioned it. And I'd even traveled to Florida and interviewed at some Orvis Lodges. I drove all the way um, up through Charleston. I came up to Asheville. I was cruising around um, in my off time trying to find somewhere to live
1: close to my family right. at home. It's crazy to me. I, you know, obviously I grew up around here. Um, I lived here before the South Holston was a good fishery. Um, they put the weir in and it's like waving a magic wand. Bam. It, it becomes what many people would say is like one of, the, if not the top Tailwater for brown trout In the United States I'm sure there's tons of people that'll say Bullshit, you know, this river That river But the truth is, consistently From Numbers to big fish, self-sustaining Tailwater, fishery South Holston's Pretty fucking hard to beat And I, you know Having been around it Obviously it's on my radar But I'm like you there's a lot of people when you say, Have you heard of the Holston? And they're like, No. And you're like, have you been living in a fucking under a rock or something? But it makes me scratch my head. And this is this is pointed at you, you know? To this day, I can have conversations with people and I say, Yeah, I would call my home water the South Holston. And they're like, the the who, the what, the where? You're managing a fly shop. Bristol, the Tri-Cities, has done its own self a disservice not to be promoting the river and making it more of a household name nationally for for fly fishing. I mean, most people, you know, crazy as it is, You know, when people are like, where are you from? Bristol. Where's that? Do you watch NASCAR? Oh, yeah. The Bristol. Oh, that Bristol. Okay. I mean, and and that's a fucking place that gets busy twice a year. And let's not even really call the spring busy. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So what do you think, now that you've been here and you're managing the shop, what, what how is such a great river remaining such a secret? I, I've i seen a lot of change since I've been here. So I kind of, uh, I think it's kind of blown up. No, I would agree it is blowing up. But it it, it is still kind of like that hidden gem. Um, and, it, and it's that double-edged sword, right? Uh, we were talking earlier when we were having dinner. Louisiana. Think of how many years some some good old Cajun that had a fly pole was going out there with the dumbass bull reds that will eat, you know, a turd on the end of a fucking leader <laughs> and just having a good old time, knew to keep his mouth shut until YouTube comes along. People weren't looking to put a video up of how to fix the, the tractor. They put up a video of those stupid eat-anything redfish that are ginormous, and suddenly Louisiana's on the map. Yeah, and then all these guys from Florida just start. There's more Florida license plates <laughs> at the boat launch in Louisiana than there are Louisiana plates because everybody in Florida runs up. But it works the other way around, too. You've got guys that would say that they're a Louisiana native, um, went to college, played baseball, moved to Florida, worked at a fly shop, and became a tarpon guide. But they're really a Louisiana guy that comes down just for tarpon season and then goes home for redfish, but then complains that the guys in Florida... That he bragged about the redfish to yeah. follow him back home. You know, it's it, it, it's we were making fun of Asheville. Those guys in Western North Carolina know what we've got here, so they hook the drift boat up every morning and run across twenty six to come yep. over here, right? For sure. So, I mean, there's the good and the bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure
2: tomorrow morning, or you know. While I'm at the fly shop Monday, all my windows will be bashed out or whenever this gets released and uh, spray painted.
1: (laughs) So, I stopped by the shop earlier this week. Um, You actually were back home in Mississippi. Um, We didn't cross paths, but I took 44 back to Bluff City to come back home. And you're right. It's blowing up. Like, the number of boats I counted from the ramp there below the weir to past Rockhold, I was like, "Holy smokes!" And it, w- it 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 was a weekday. I mean, yeah, it's kind of during Christmas break or whatever. But I was astonished. Yeah.
2: Well, like you said, it's a double-edged sword, you know. Um, right after I moved here, within about three months, uh, there's a fly Eastern Fly magazine. Uh huh. That came out with the article in our shop. Okay. And then either within the next two years, there were two articles in Fly Fisherman magazine. And um, one of them was on the caddis hatch on the Watauga, which is it's kind of hit or miss, but it's an awesome hatch. But it's about two weeks a year. It's in April. Okay. Yeah. I'll just call the shop. I'll book you up. Um, so it's in april you know that that got a whole issue and then all of a sudden um there was another article on the south holston you know and it was in fly fisherman magazine and i think blaine chocolate or one of these big streamer guys mentioned some stuff about south holston being the next up and comer and there was a big huge brown on the cover but i think it maybe it was from the white and um and then, you know, like I say, it's a double-edged sword. you know, I probably guided the most days I have since I've been been up here, you know this summer will be five years. but we all, our shop also just did an article for Garden and Gun, and um you know, it turned out to be a good article, and it brought a lot of people in this summer and um you know if there's a if there's a Bentley parked in your old parking space down at the Weir, sorry. Right. I'm kidding. No, but you know, it it is, there's just becoming, it's more and more, but so, you know, it's great to be busy. It's nice. I stay, I stay busy and there's plenty of days to guide and I work in the shop full time and I'm still in the industry after moving South and I can't be more thankful, you know, to a handful of people, you know, to just give me
1: opportunity. So how has that transition been from, That out west hustle, whether it was, you know, managing things at the the ski lodge during the winter or your passion, your love, being on the river, guiding on the daily to now you're managing a shop. I mean, it's got to be a huge change of pace.
2: Well, I mean, I'm managing a shop. That um, I got two days off a week I can guide, or three. Um, You know, this summer I I was working four days in the shop and three off. Open schedule to take whatever guide trips are available. And I just got a... You met Sam, the new guy. Mm -hmm. So um, he's going to cover me as much as I want. And I'm getting a few more requests. So, you know, strike while the iron's hot. I'm not getting any younger. And, uh, you know, hopefully... I, I just I'm going to keep hustling a little bit. I don't want to be rowing when I'm 65, so right. I'm going to try and make a little money and have a lot of fun.
1: Is Mike Adams still
2: out he, there? He, yep, out he there sure grinding is. it. Oh yeah. I mean, no offense to anyone older out doing what they love, but yeah, I'd rather somebody be rowing me.
1: Right, right. So, so the balance between being on the water uh, and managing the shop. Um, do you think you get any more criticism or a critical eye from the guys that are on the water as guides, and that's all they do? Um, versus, oh, there's there's Robert. You know, he runs the shop, so of course he, you know, he he slides some guide trips his own way, and he's out here, he's poaching our business. Or do, is there more of a symbiotic relationship where they understand, hey, you're going to do both, and it's probably smarter to be on Robert's good side because, let's be honest, you know you're probably getting more phone calls looking to book guides than maybe you guys have guides available on a particular day. So it, the smart, the smart money bet is to make sure that you're going to pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, are you booked, or can you help us out? You know, I found everybody to be super territorial when I moved here. Mm -hmm. But
2: in the same sense, um, you know, I had to fight for it at 20, and I was at 21, and I'm I'm not going to fight for it at 40. And... The other deal is is I've called these guys and said, "Hey, I got a backup trip. Hey, can you guys can you guys fill in for us? Hey, um, hey, you need this?" Or I say, "Hey, if you need anything, I'm at the shop all day. Call me." A lot of guys lose their anchors. A lot of guys forget stuff. You know, I'll, I'll run down there and help you run your shuttle. And you know, I've just kind of eased into the community. And it, there's a big difference in me and these guys out making a living. Is um, it, it, it's a lifestyle for me. I, I lived on the river in Meeker for 10 years, and I live on the, reaker, on the river now. And my rods are rigged. You know, they hang on my back porch. And I'm constantly tying flies and fishing because it's what I love. And I go out with my bird dog, and I don't have a big posse I, I go cruise around with and stuff. It's just the way I live. And I'm not out there trying to get their hustle or get in their way. Right. You know, I'm out there trying to go fish the spinner fall, the best time to be fishing. I'm out there fishing when the water's off color and I'm throwing big streamers and catching big fish. And I also got quickly got involved in the community, and I think a lot of people realize that I've been doing it a long time. You know, some people said, hey, do you mind kind of doing a fly tying class or helping us out or something? I'd never even done a fly tying class. I've never been properly taught how to tie. So I'd go watch these videos. So here I go. I, I actually watch videos this time, not a book, right? And figure out the proper way to tie it because I knew if somebody filmed it and it got put on Twitter book, that I'd, there'd be a hundred comments saying, "Well, you Robert sh- didn't know what he's doing. You sh- need to do your whip finish. Uh, you did it backwards instead of forward, or blah blah blah." But um, I started doing that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, that's that's in part a small connection to you is working with Project Healing Waters and actually meeting your father before I met you. Yeah. So I think a lot of these guys just accepted me because I just, you know, whether everybody kind of gave me a tough time when I got here, but all I have to do is it's
1: part It's actually part of the culture here, I think. Um, there's, a, there's a coffee table book um, that you should seek out. Um, probably, you know, we're... I would tell you, probably go on Amazon and, and, and search for it, and there's probably copies of it that, that are available. It's called You're Not From Around Here. And probably more appropriately, the title of the book's You're Not From Around Here. You know. <laughs> um, and it's this collection of images. Uh, it's a uh, East Tennessee State University. Professor that was a photographer. That was his passion. And he spent years going up all these old hollas and taking photos of just some of the craziness that you see in Appalachia, whether it's Southwest Virginia or East Tennessee where we're sitting. And, you know, it's like a coon dog chained up living in a 55 gallon drum in front of this like tiny little shack that has a brand new Cadillac sitting in front of it. You know, um, it's just an interesting place to grow up for sure. But it had to be a culture shock, um, moving here. You know, you're from, you know, Northern Mississippi, the genteel South. Um, and, and we're from Appalachia. Um, you know,
2: I, I was shocked for sure. I mean, just
1: And you're what? an outsider is what I'm getting at. It's yeah. you know, here you roll into town and there's probably a lot of distrust. Uh, there's a lot of concern. Who's this new guy? Who's this guy that's been he's been a guide out west for twenty years and he just showed up here? What's he gonna change? What's he think he's gonna do? Who the fuck does he think he is? But you did it the right way. You came in and Started participating in the local scene, and here you are today, five years later, and you are on the river. You live on the river. Guys are smart; they're enlisting your help, which you've offered. Um, I just fish.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I just love it, and that's and that's something else I was going to tell you is like working in the shop. I wanted to work in the shop. You know, they they want some guys to row here for a couple of years, you know, and to be able to catch a bunch of fish before they want to put them on the water. And that's kind of your rite of passage at the South Holston River Fly Shop. But for me, I started working in the shop and, and I just wanted to sit at that, just start waiting and start being around the bugs and start selling bugs and figuring out different rigs and talk to people all day and say, hey, man, what are you catching them on? Hey, where do you fish? What's going on? You know, and just... And just kind of slowly, because all I have is time. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't in a hurry. Well, that's the luxury, you yeah.
1: know, uh, of your position. You, you got nothing but time all I, day long.
2: I, a lot of guys here, they just, they start working in the shop. They get a little taste of the money and all they want to work is guide. But it's not a year-round gig here. My deal was to work hard and try and get that year-round shop job. Um, you know, as crazy as this sounds, there's, there's a bunch of guys that came in the shop and they're like, dude, we're sorry you're stuck in the shop. It must suck seeing the guides go out and stuff. And I'm like, no, man, I'm living the dream. Like when I I was planning on retiring 55 or 60, I'm working in a fly shop. I've always wanted to work in a fly shop. You know, it's what I did 20 years ago. And I, I never, you know, I spent a half a season. I enjoyed meeting people, you know, I like people to come in and, you know, give them a lot of good info, go catch some fish, come back and thank me. Um, and it, it's been pretty rewarding. And I learned a lot by sitting in that shop. And I got a year-round job, and um, I'm able to guide whenever I want. You know, the owners have been, you know, Matt Champion and Rod Champion have been really cool with me.
1: They I mean, put up- absolute hallmarks in the area for, for fly fishing. Yeah, I mean, the vision that they had to start that shop years ago um, probably
2: 16 17 yeah, years ago yeah it was in their garage before that over in North Carolina right so you know they they put some trust into me and and uh, I was just super psyched and you know Matt was like hey man we're not in a hurry for another guide we want somebody to work in the shop and I said great I don't want a guide I just want to work the shop he said really the other guy working in the shop was like man I'm done with the shop you know you can have it I don't I don't even want it
1: but there was a factor that we talked about of how that shop was kind of being run um and again the cultural thing and you came from a very organized background kind of that corporate mindset which is completely foreign to a lot of how things are done around here And you've come in and you've really organized things. You've really tightened up how things happen at that shop. And I would say that the champions are probably pretty happy and better off for it. Because that is your focus. Because prior to that, it was people biding their time, looking at the door, not hoping for Bob from Minnesota... Coming in that you're going to be able to engage, talk to, help him come up with a really awesome couple of days on the river. They were looking at the door, trying to figure out how the fuck to get out of it and never have to come back in it. They wanted to be in the boat. Right. Yeah. So.
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was just down for the job. I, I, I wanted to just start putting things together and, and nobody in there really wanted to be there and that's all I wanted. Right. Um, I love going in a fly shop and there's some dude working in there, you know, I mean, I, I just always was like, man, I just want to work in a fly shop. I'm going to retire and grow my hair out and hang out in the fly shop and be that dude. Um, but in the same sense, you know, I saw a couple of new shops opening up and, uh, you know, speaking of hustle, there's a few guys hustling around here. All of a sudden fly fishing got on the map, stuff started moving. I was like, well, you know, we definitely need an Instagram account. We need some type of branding. And this just came from, you know, all the corporate meetings and stuff I did in Steamboat. And I was like, we need to start doing this. I said, you know, I'm going to create myself a position. And I created a manager position. And, you know, Rod and them said, for sure, you know, what can you help us do? And and Rod slowly but surely stepped away from it. My my first season run in the shop, he still did the ordering for Sims. And he, he kept a hold of a couple accounts and, uh, Finally, he said, you know, we trust you and, and, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to bring in this rod company and I want to buy this stuff. And, you know, our brand needs to match everything we got. And, you know, we need to let people know that we're sticking around. We're going to do this. So.
1: The. Lesson that's buried in this entire journey that you've taken um, for for the young guy, the the kid that doesn't know what he wants to do insofar as, you know, he's not got his eyes set on, I want to go to med school or I want to go be an engineer or, you know, a computer IT guy. And and, and he keeps getting drawn to, he wants to do something in the outdoors. He wants to have that, he, he wants his work and his life to be a blend and it's a lifestyle like you're living What's your best advice for that 20-something-year-old? Get an education.
2: <laughs> but but in what? Uh, no, I'm I just totally making a joke. Um, you know, it's just hard to say. I mean... It just, you, you just have to have your priorities, what, what you want in life. You know, if this kid wants to have a family and a house and, you know, he, he's thinking that he wants, you know, I don't even know if people think that way, the way we were raised, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to get married and have kids and we'll do this. You know, if you're going to have a guide lifestyle and you want to make it, you, you need to be ready to grind it out and make sure that you're going to jump in and stay in and keep working at it because... I mean, especially to make make it in East Tennessee. You know, there's not a lot of guides out on the water, you know, December, January, February. There's not a lot of guys that are raising kids, you know, and, and married and, and doing that kind of stuff. This lifestyle's for single guy that loves to hunt and fish,
1: you know. So, So your observation in the five years you've been around here is that it's kind of like the young guys game. Most of the guys get into it do it for a while, but realize they're not going to be able to sustain and take it. I've seen a few and, come and, and go for sure already. Right. Yeah. But so let's bring up Patrick. Um, he's maybe the exception to the rule, right? Yeah. But I see a lot of you and Patrick and Patrick and you, meaning, and I, I want to get your take on it. Here's my take. Both of you, whether it was you looking in that book, flipping pages, the top locations, you know, the top lodges, the top fishing operations, and you focusing on, okay, I know what I want. Here it is in front of me on the pages of this book. So I'm going to, back then, you wrote letters requested information eventually got yourself um, an application and you hustled you you had that focus, and and you, you've said it you call it the grind you got to be ready to grind it out yeah Patrick was doing it saw what was happening and realized that he was working really hard and making somebody else all the money right? So he eventually said, why am I working for somebody else? I'm going to start working for me. And now he has developed and grown a business. For sure. And the difference, it's very much a minutiae thing. Yeah, the champions own the shop, but pretty much it's your shop now, right? They've kind yeah. of taken, well, I mean, you know, it's still the champion shop, but they've they've given you the reins, right? Correct. So... And that's been the culmination of 20-plus years of you seeing the next goal and figuring out what am I going to have to do to achieve that goal. In other words, there's a lot of hard work involved. It's not about just posting some pictures to fucking Instagram and saying that this is what you are. Yeah.
2: And, you know, there's no
1: manual that comes with
2: the business, especially for a shop around here. Because it's all due to the weather and the water. I mean, when last year the the river was running 4,000 for three months and business was not happening, you know, I had – luckily I'd built – a few locals that came in and ordered stuff and a few guys that hang around the shop, you know, some shop rats and people still buying stuff, you know, and and thankful that Patrick brings some of his clients to he doesn't have a shop He'd right. swing through and say, hey, here's Robert, you know, and some of his guys do. And that's just part of me being cool with everybody. I don't you know, I you mean, have to be everybody's going to need a dry fly at some point in time near the South Holston. And uh, we're we're pretty close. So, you know. I'd have to say since, you know, you brought him up and everything, I, I think he's a smart businessman and and you know, he's uh he's still he probably he's got so many guides on now, he probably doesn't have to work, but he loves it and he's still out there running two hundred days a year. Right. So, you know, the guys that are working under him, hopefully they're they're uh leading from example,
1: I hope. Right. So if somebody listening to us having our conversation was thinking about coming and fishing the Holston? What would you tell them is the ideal time of year or what hatch would you say, pencil this in on your calendar, this is the time that you need to be here? Because earlier mistakenly, apparently I was like, well, you know, it's a really consistent fishery, but there are times like, fuck, the last two days we've had nothing but rain, 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 rain. Now they've had the generation shut off the last two days, but guarantee you all the water coming out of Virginia into the lake right now, it's going to fill it up a whole lot higher than winter pool levels. And they're going to be blasting water probably next week. Right. Yeah, stay. I'll take some days off. Let's float. Yeah, I wish I could. <laughs> um, but you know, you're running the shop. Tell us. Let's You know, well, people are here, listening. Here, when the do deal. they come fish I, the Holston?
2: I can tell you exactly. It's it depends on what you like to do. And I'll start as of right now in January. If you're looking for a huge fish, um, you know, the browns are spawning right now. We don't necessarily target a spawning brown, which, you know, it is not So politically, I wouldn't know how to say it. You know, it's just not, you know, that's not the right thing to be doing. And, uh, but, you know, it's what's going on. And it's the time that people do luck into catching some big fish. And and we're still running trips. The business is open. The river's open. Um, There's protected areas that, of course, we don't fish. But if you're looking to luck up and try and easily catch one of these big fish, Um, you know, now would be the time, but you have to realize a lot of the locals fish this time of year and it's the only time of year they fish. They just want to catch some big fish. And I, and I imagine some of them want to keep these big fish and eat them. So, you know, they're, they're doing what's legal. So, you know, that they have been doing for generations. Um, after the spawn's over, you know, the fish are coming off the beds and they start eating some big stuff. We start throwing some streamers. Um, if the water, if it stays cool, February, March, the blue wing hatch can get rolling as good as the sulfur hatch. Um, if not, the midge fishing's great, and, and it's just consistent. I mean, of course, this is a midge fishery. The the tailwater, then we roll into spring. Um, you know, if you're here in April and you get a chance to go to the Watauga, try and fish some caddis. We start working into our dry fly season. You know, May, uh, May, we'll start kicking off the sulfurs into April, May. They start earlier on the Watauga, and then, and then I'd say by June is a good time that I tell people if they really want to fish the sulfur hatch. It's I'd say June to September, the end of September. I'd say June to August for sure is consistent, almost daily. I mean, it, it is just a it's a pretty epic hatch, and the cool thing is is uh, you know it's low water, it's high water. My favorite season, if you want to ask me when to come, is to come at the uh, end of June, beginning of July. There's some uh, beetles. It's our only terrestrial. You know, you can slap some beetles on the water. You can dry fly fish all day. They eat mice at night. And, uh, you know, that, that'd be when I tell somebody to come. Um, as we finish off September, we get into, into September, it becomes streamer season. These fish are loading up. They're pretty aggressive. September, October, they're on the streamers and then, you know, November, November, it's, it's spawn, you know, October's pre-spawn and then spawn. So also in there, I skipped, uh, the rainbows spawn in the spring. So a lot of guys, and then the suckers will too. So the guys will be fishing around that stuff, you know, at some point in, in time too. But I, I don't think it's nearly as people fish it as much as they do the Browns. Right. So it's seasonal. Someone calls me up and they say, "Hey, when's the best time to be there?" And I say, "What do you want to do?" Depends on. Stream streamer fish. Okay, then you need to come, you know, be here in September. You know, dry fly fish, you know, June through August.
1: So perfect. Um what in the in the scheme of things of all the waters you've fished where would you put the South Holston? You know, it,
2: it's just so tough. If you if you fished out west, especially around steamboat or the you know, the Elk River out there, the hopper season out there and sight fishing for those big fish that are gulping is just, it's just so hard. Um you know, especially the Yampa, those big. If you had some access, private access to those fish, you know, watching them eat big hoppers and then you know putting that big hopper on and eating. But it, it, it man, that's just a that's a tough question, right there. Yellowstone, the caddis hatch, the Mother's Day caddis hatch up in Montana. I've been fortunate to fish a lot of places. Um, you know, the South Holston is is definitely. You know, if you're on high, in my opinion, high water fish in the sulfur hatch is, is definitely in the top five of anywhere I've fished. Um, those fish usually stay on bottom. It's crystal clear. You'll see them levitate about halfway up. Then they'll cruise all the way up. If somebody's got a bad drift or a bad mend or drag, you'll just watch them just refusal.
1: Turn off. Right, right in their face. Um, so Robert King is given the choice fish for trout anywhere you want. Doesn't matter where. Or you could go fish the salt. Which do you choose? It's salt for
2: me. Yeah. Trout's a way to make a living. Salt's my passion. So
1: to that end, I think it was probably... June of last year, I may have swung through the shop and you shared, um, your Cuba trip. When did you do that Cuba trip last year? Um,
2: I, I think we left a year ago today. Okay. Um, and I went down to Charleston on the fourth, we flew out of the fifth on to, then we went to Fort Lauderdale for the fifth night. So tell me about tell me about
1: that trip. You guys stayed on a houseboat?
2: We did. We stayed on the barge. And uh, you know, it was I, I like I said, I fished a lot of places and um, you know, Belize, Ascension Bay, um, Hawaii, a handful of places. I fished a lot of places and, and definitely Cuba was I'd have to say four or five times as good as anywhere I've been. Um, it it was, it was a crazy experience, you know, I I didn't put much thought into the country itself. I was just thinking about the fishery and as soon as we got off the plane, you know, the humidity hit me in the face we're cruising through and they're ripping apart your luggage and, you know, going through everything and, you know, it was just, it was all, you know, it was just kind of interesting, you know, they were just kind of, I felt out of place it felt kind of weird um, and as soon as we we kind of got in the airport and I just it wasn't an uneasy feeling it was just I didn't put much thought into it it was everything I could do to finish Christmas and New Year's and to get from New Orleans or you know South Mississippi all the way back here then to Charleston then the plane Fort Lauderdale blah 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 and um, and then to see the cars cruise through you're like wow And then we cruised into Kamigoy in this massive um, tour bus, which was pretty ridiculous to see in the streets. I've got photos. It was just crazy. And they stopped and they said, y'all need to get anything? You know, of course, you know, I just took off running for rum and cigars. And, um, you know, we got back on the bus. And then five minutes later, I was in some of the most poverty stricken place I've ever been in my life. Really? You know, probably 10 minutes outside the city and just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was I was blown away. I never you know, I've cruised around Mexico and, and places like that, but I've never, never seen anything like this. And then, you know, the, the the dirt roads half paved, you know, then we're on a bus for like three hours. And uh, I thought the bus ride, you know, maybe in the great travel host that everyone was in store for. Um, you know, I thought it was like an hour and a half or something, but it ended up taking about three hours. And um, it was crazy. Then once we got to the port where we were taken out of, um, they had a fence around it and they gated us in. The people ran up to the fence and like shaking the fence and yelling and all this stuff. You know, and we we're like, you know, and the whole way down there, people were like waving the bus down trying to get a ride and we didn't see any more cars it was all uh horse-drawn wagons and people on bikes and uh i saw a couple of random pickup trucks and maybe you know some farm trucks and stuff but it wasn't I, i don't think i was in store for that um you know you get to cuba you get off the plane there's a few guys with guns and you're like oh man it's super humidity and they're Looking through your bags a little bit And you're like, oh, wow And you see the old cars And then 15 minutes later You're like, wow We live in a very You know, me being Calling myself a trout bum You know, I'm not gonna do that ever again You know, I'm like I'm a very wealthy person <laughs> <laughs> Yeah Working at the fly shop Right um, So you know, th- that being said, that just it just blew me out of the water. I, I, and, and then we get on these boats, you know, and I'm trying to make sure they got our luggage. They're throwing all this luggage everywhere. And we got on this big 40-footer, and uh, they fired it up, and there's diesel smoke everywhere. And I was like, man, where's my bag? Where's my bag? I saw one of my bags go to another boat and, um, you know, had a few fancy reels <laughs> in there. I'm kind of running around like a madman. And uh, we get on that boat, and we're just, like, breathing diesel, and we stayed out late the night before in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and, um, you know, I'm just like, oh, I'm on my deathbed. What's going on? And all of a sudden, this dude slaps me on the shoulder. He's like, yeah, hey, hey, are you Robert? And I'm like, yeah, I'm Keiko. I'm your guide. You all want some beers? And I'm like, here we go. Here we go. Let's start this vacation. So we, you know, we had a little toast and around and then uh, we went up on top, sat with the crew, started talking to them, and, you know, let them know that we are going to be easy. Just wanted to have some fun, and we're on that boat for about three hours, about two and a half hours, and uh, we got to the aboard and uh, unpacked, and it was just, it was beautiful. It was, it was, um, you know, it was all mangroves,
1: super remote. Yep.
2: Um, but they kind of had their little center there. Like our barge was here, and they had some guide shacks across the way. They had one of the dive boats was over here, you mm-hmm. know. So they had a couple of skiffs, you know, all the skiffs lined up and everything. And we got to the barge, and it was really nice because it was, uh, you know, it was stable. It was lined in. It was cabled and all that good stuff. And we sat around and, you know, just BSed a little bit, hung out. And uh, a couple of the guys were, were sitting around throwing for this tarpon. And um, it just throwing flies into space, in his face, in his face. And, I mean... I tell you what, my luck was on that trip. I, I walked over and asked the guy if I could throw one time after these guys threw at him for two hours, and I, I threw him in front of this tarpon and just ripped this fly in front of his face. He ate. I landed my first tarpon, you know, right off the back of the barge, and I was like, oh, it's on. Um, and, you know, after that, it was just, it was it was pretty epic. I, we, we kept up with fish on the board, you know, pretty much the whole week, and they wanted to do it a, like, a lo- like a log, like a log of, you know, if you had, if you jumped one or missed one, they had the circle and the line and, and, you know, towards the end of the week we were were doing pretty well. And I think we were doing better than some of the other people. And we just quit filling it out or whatever, you know, I mean, there are 60, 70 fish up there and you're like, yeah, we're doing pretty good. But, um, the fish just didn't hesitate at the flies. You know, I had a buddy with me. He's pretty new to fly fishing. Um, he's been getting after it for a couple of years and he's from Charleston And uh, the guide finally said, look, man, if you can't if you can't hit lead that fish or you can't do anything, just try and hit him. You know, and he just slaps this fly on the back of a 10 pound bonefish and he just turns around, inhales it and takes off. You know, he didn't even have to strip set or anything. And I mean, it was it was like that for about a week. Fuck. The area we were at, we had two boats with us and there was another group staying on another live aboard that had they had two boats. In the area we were fishing, there was an A, B, and C section, and um, it was as big as the Keys, and it was just it was just four boats. And they said afterwards they're going to let it rest for seven days, and then they were going to have another six boats or so. I mean, the tarpon did not hesitate at all. If you could get a fly, anything purple and black near a tarpon, these 25-pound tarpon were fighting over each other just to just inhale these flies. Um. It was just the permit, of course, our permit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, universal. But I had, you know, I had a shot, I'd say, a day, a shot, you know, some days, two shots, you know, a couple times tailing permit, follow, 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 swim, 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 boat, gone, you know, swim all the way back, open up, open up to eat, turn around, run off. The guy'd like, change flies, change flies, and get back on them again, with a different fly and have them not eat. I mean, that's just unheard of, you know. So it, it was awesome. You know, we also got into huge jacks on the ocean side. You know, 25, 30-pound jacks, 25-pound cuda. Um, it was it was a trip of a lifetime. I'm I, You know, I'm dying to go back. If anybody will commit, I'm trying to get there February. But, you know, it's just a little tough on the pocketbook.
1: Yeah. So anything else, like, on the bucket list?
2: No, you know, we talk about Christmas Island and GTs and all that stuff. But Cuba is something that I was trying to do for probably the last 10 years. We talked to some guys in Mexico about flying us over there or just we I've been dying to get over there. And, you know, I stayed in Camagüey uh, one last night and, you know, there was music and culture and everything was just top notch. So I'm in a holding pattern. Um, I stayed on the South Holston all summer it was the first time. I didn't even go to Charleston or Outer Banks or anything and uh I'm happy. I'm I'm uh trying to stay happy and healthy for twenty twenty. That's that's my goal.
1: Living your best life. I'm trying to. All right. Well uh I appreciate you coming over this evening. Um uh being able to hear the journey that's that's Robert King's life uh from Mississippi to the big, wide open expanses of the West, back here to the Hollers of East Tennessee. It's yeah. been a pleasure. All
2: right. Well, thanks for having me.
1: All right. Well, uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how do they do that?
2: Uh,
1: I guess I'll do that social media thing. I, I'm the Fly Guide on Instagram,
2: and uh, South Holston River Fly Shop. Just give us a call. You can hit their Instagram page. It's Soho Fly Shop. Um, I'm the fly guide at
1: hotmail, Gmail,
2: and email, you guys have a at, uh, web address for the fly do. shop. South Olson river fly com.
1: All right. So, uh, get up here according to whether you want to rip some streamers or fish, dry flies, give Robert a call. He'll get you hooked up and you too can, uh, come up and see what East Tennessee is about and I grew up. figure out. If Two you're from around here, or not. <laughs> we'll catch you on the next one.
0: Me and my daddy used to fish next to Wilson Dan. He told some stories, Camaros and JW Dan. When I got a little older I wouldn't And now daddy Can't So I thank God For the TV Thank God For the TV Where me and my daddy used to bow to the river and pray Thank God for the tea Sit out on the lock Watching the raccoons And terrapins Dance on the rocks She let me Put my hand Up under her shirt I wanted her to want me so bad did her. My granddaddy told me when he was just seven or so. His daddy lost work, and they didn't have a road to home. not too much to eat. For seven boys And three girls All lived in a tent Bunch of sharecroppers Versus the world So his mama sat down And wrote a letter and a couple of days later A couple county men came in a car rode out in the field and Told his daddy to put down the plow He helped build the dam, gave power to most of the South. So I thank God for the TV. Thank.